Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7. And I'm going to bring you a message entitled, God has given us the spirit. How many of you know that today is Pentecost Sunday? How many of you know that today is a day that we rejoice? It's the day the church was born in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Those of you who have been with us at Bible study on Wednesday night, you know where that term came from. You know why it happened, why it exists. It comes from the, from the idea that the Jews had had from all the way back in the book of Leviticus from the feast of Pentecost which is the feast of harvest. It was the, the harvest was, was coming in. And Pentecost means 50th. It's the 50th day after Passover. We mark it as the 50th day after Easter or after the, the day the Lord rose again from the grave. And so Pentecost is a very important day because to the church, it's actually the day the church was born. And this morning, I want to show you through scripture. So I hope that you brought your Bibles because you're going to be flipping through your Bible quite a bit. I'm going to switch over here, Mike. You're going to be flipping through your Bible. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. I'm going to give you a very biblical, basic, foundational understanding of the giving of the Spirit here on Pentecost. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. I read this verse actually last week, but I wanted to flesh it out this week. It says with me, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, love, and of self-discipline. Now, I want you to notice something. That Paul is writing after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, and he's speaking actually in the affirmative. He's saying God did not give a spirit of timidity, but what God did give power, love, sound mind, or self-discipline. Which means that Paul is trying to communicate this idea. God has given us the Spirit. He's given us the Spirit. Now, once again, Paul is speaking in past tense because he's speaking after the day of Pentecost. Pentecost has already come. Now, the Apostle Paul was not present on the day of Pentecost. He was not one of those in the upper room, the 120 that were there. But Paul did have that experience. As you know, the story of Paul as he's riding on the road toward Damascus, he's riding on his horse, and the, the, the God comes down, the, the, uh, Jesus appears to him, knocks him off of his horse, and he has a salvation experience right there on the road to Damascus. God speaks to him and he goes on into Damascus blinded because of the power of God and he's sitting there and you know the story. In Acts chapter 9, a man named Ananias, a prophet, God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I want you to pray for the man named Saul and you're going to pray that his eyes are open and you're going to pray that the Spirit of God is going to come upon him. And exactly that happens in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Ananias goes, he prays for Paul, scales fall off his eyes, he's able to see again. And the Spirit, it says, and he was filled with the Spirit. So Paul is saying in the past tense, 
The Spirit has been given. God has given us the Spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Many years ago, and when I was just seven years old, little boy in West Texas, a town some of you might, might even know it, it's called Stamford, Texas, just north of Abilene there. I was praying in an altar, being raised in a spirit-filled church. I was praying in an altar, and I said, Jesus, I want more of you. I just want all that you have. I want everything that you have. Seven-year-old boy, as innocent as I possibly could be, I said, Lord, I just want everything that you have for my life. And sure enough, as I prayed there, and as tears ran down my face, down my cheeks, the Lord baptized me powerfully in the Spirit. It was an experience that I will never forget. It was a moment in my life that's like sticking a flag in the ground and saying, you know what, that was a marker that will, that will propel me for the future. I've never forgotten that moment. I can tell you the day it was. I can tell you when it was. I can tell you exactly where it was. I'll never forget that. It's an experience that changed my life. And as I go through the Scriptures this morning today, I want you to understand that as a Spirit-filled church, which is what our church is, we stand firm on the biblical and the doctrinal ground of what the Bible says. Everything that I bring to you, I don't make up, I don't come up with because somebody says it's a good thing to teach. I bring to you only what the Word of God says and the experiences that are seen in the Scriptures. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has been recognized by the church for millennia, for thousands of years, but it's only up until the last 125 or 150 years that, that, that the enemy has sown this myth, this created this myth in order to remove that idea and that experience from the church. And in doing so, he removes power and love and self-discipline. Now, can you say that the church is lacking in power? I would say yes in general. Can you say the church is truly lacking in love? Yes. Is the church lacking in self-discipline? Are we living a little bit too carnal? I would say yes, because you can just look around. I'm talking about the church in general. And that's why the giving of the Spirit is so important, because He comes and He's already been given in order for the church, for the people of God, to experience power and love and that sound mind or that self-discipline. At the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, God did something amazing. He did something unique. Because as the enemy had sown that idea into the church, that the church was, it become very dry and it become very crusty and there was no feeling, there was no worship, there was no power, no true love. God began to pour out His Spirit again. It started in just a few people. One of those, one of those was a little school up in Kansas. Another place was Azusa Street in Los Angeles with a, a fiery preacher named William Seymour. God began to pour out little places. The Welsh Revival across the, across the Atlantic. God began to pour His Spirit out again and something began to happen. God did something incredibly amazing in this outpouring. And what it produced in the 20th century is the strongest, largest, most evangelical, missions-minded church in the world. The Spirit-filled church, which is what you are a part of here in this body, in this assembly, is the largest numerical group in the world. Not a denomination. A Spirit-filled church. 
A church that accepts the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life as seen through the Scriptures. The baptism of the Holy Spirit became recognized, it became accepted, and now it is the largest known group in the world carrying the gospel. I want us to be reminded of that reality today here as we celebrate Pentecost. The first thing that you need to see is that the Bible always refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. The Holy Spirit is always seen in the Scripture as a he, him, or his. The Holy Spirit is never referred to as an it. Sometimes we use that word it, but he is not a force, he is not some power, he is a person. Holy Spirit is a person. Most of the time, I think that sometimes when we say, you know, hey, that's it, that's it. Oh, it's great. Isn't it wonderful? I think what it is, is because of just the word, the Holy Spirit. It would have been much easier if the Holy Spirit's name would have been Bob or Chuck. It would have been a lot easier for us to understand because when you say the Holy Spirit, it's kind of difficult. Difficult, But when Jesus, he could have said, you know, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to send you Chuck and he's going to be your counselor. And then we would understand that sounds more like a person to me than the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to understand is the Holy Spirit is not his name. That is who he is. That is his description because the Holy Spirit is God just a description. It's a description of the third person of the Trinity. Shall we open that egg, the Trinity? Three in one? How does that even work? Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let me explain it to you, and it might help just a little bit. When we talk about the Trinity, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have to understand in two concepts. You have to understand the difference between a being and persons. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. He is a person. Jesus is a person. The Father is known as His personhood, His image. The being and a person, it's like this. I am a human being. And when you talk about being, that is what I am. I am flesh, I am bone, I am blood. I am a human being. It's what I am. But that is not who I am. See, who I am is Scott. That is who I am. That is how I express. And, and you know my personality. You know how I express myself. That is the role that I play as a pastor. I am Scott, the pastor. You see how that works? There's a difference between being and person. And the Holy Spirit is a per He is God. The being is God. He is God. But He is the person, the Holy Spirit, because of His role in our lives. God had a role in our lives in creation. Jesus has a role in our life in salvation. And the Holy Spirit has a work and a role in our lives in empowerment and in filling. And so I want you to understand that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God the Chuck does not sound as good. It's important that you see Him as a person and not a thing. 
And I want you to just catch that this morning as we go through this because God always wants to have the closest possible relationship with us. But how can He do that? How many of you have ever seen God the Father? Glad you didn't raise your hand because the Scripture was saying if you have, then you'd be in the graveyard. God wants the closest relationship that He can always have with us. In the garden, what happened? God walked with Adam and Eve. That's what He said. He walked with them. You fast forward into the New Testament, you have the disciples, and Jesus became flesh, and He walked with His disciples. The closest way that you could see that. But now, how does God have His closeness? What is His nearness? Well, what happens is the Lord comes. Now He comes not only to be with us, but He comes to live in us. There is no closer relationship than you can have to God than be full of the Holy Spirit because He becomes the resident tenant in your life. He is always there. He is always with you. Even when you feel like He is nowhere to be found, God is always there because the Holy Spirit is present in those who, are, who, who follow Jesus, who have committed their life to Christ, and who are, are saying, Lord, there is, I want more, and I want more. And He begins to fill and pour upon their life until the outflowing comes. That's as close as you can ever get to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Spirit. He has already given us the Spirit. So I want to take you for the next few moments through a biblical journey of that giving of the Holy Spirit. There were those before the day of Pentecost who looked ahead to the day of the giving of the Spirit. In Numbers chapter 11, I want you to look with me. If you have your Bibles, if you're taking notes, I want you to write these verses down. Numbers chapter 11. Verse 16 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. And I will come down and I will speak with you there and I will take of the Spirit that is on you and put on them and put the Spirit on them, and they will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. He says, I will take the Spirit that I've put upon you, capital S, and I will put it upon them. This is the Old Testament. This is Old Covenant stuff. This is before Pentecost. Numbers chapter 11. Let's skip down to verse 24. So Moses went out, and he told the people what the Lord had said. And he brought together 70 of their elders, and he had them stand before the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with them. Now now catch that. God begins, he's so close, he begins to speak. He spoke with them, and he took of the Spirit, capital S, that was on him, Moses, and he put that Spirit on the set of the elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, notice what happened. They prophesied. But they did not do so again. However, two men of those names were Eldad and Medad. I won't even make that joke. Eldad and Medad, they had remained in the camp and they were listed among the elders, but they did not go out of the tent. 
Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. So they didn't just stop. The Spirit of God continued to rest upon them. They began to prophesy. What do I mean? What do, what do I mean by prophesy? They began to declare the wonders of God. They began to preach. They began to, to testify and to, and to exalt Jesus or, or exalt the Father. They began to, to, to tell of the good things of God. They began to prophesy in the camp. In verse 28, Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? In other words, what, are you scared they're going to take my position because the Spirit of God also rests upon them? Look at what he says, this last verse. I wish, everybody say that, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses made a wish 1490 years before Jesus that God would put his spirit upon all people and then everyone would prophesy, everyone would proclaim the works and the greatness of God. Why did Moses wish that? Because Moses had experienced Already the power and the anointing and the closeness of God. This is a man who experienced God in a burning bush. This is a man who had been up on the mountain. If you look in Exodus chapter 19, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and the very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet blew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top. The closeness of God to this man named Moses called him to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and the, or many will perish. God gave Moses a mountaintop experience, a closeness with God, a, 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 an experience that he could never ever duplicate in any other way. Why did Moses wish for other people? He wanted everybody to have that mountaintop Sinai experience to experience the closeness and the power of God with with thunder and lightning and tremblings and the shaking and all that was occurring and hearing the very voice of God. Moses wished that everyone, back before Pentecost was even considered, before that, Moses was wishing that everyone could experience and be filled with the happenings of the presence of God. And that's why Moses made his wish. I wish everyone could have that experience, could be that close to touch God. 700 years later, after Moses' wishes, it still hadn't happened. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, the Scripture says, And afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. 800 years before the day of Pentecost, 
The prophet Joel stands up and he says, there is a time that is coming when the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. It's going to be poured out upon all of God's people. Everyone who hungers for the closeness and the outpouring of the Spirit is eligible. The sons and the daughters, the young and the old. It doesn't matter who you are, what station you are. Anyone, everyone desiring the nearness of God can experience that. He says, I will, not I wish anymore, I will. Isaiah follows that up in Joel 60 years later. Isaiah 28, verse 10 through 12 says, For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his people, to whom he said, This is the rest of which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. I don't have time to go through the entire context of that, but the same thing that Moses had wished for, the same thing that Moses was hoping would be poured out upon all God's people, Joel and Isaiah foretell that it is going to happen. That with stammering lips and another tongue, that, that God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. How is this passage in Isaiah even related to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you'll see Paul teaching about spiritual gifts. And as he's teaching about spiritual gifts, he quotes this verse from Isaiah and he connects it to the, to the outpouring and the disciples on the day of Pentecost. That's what he uses to explain what is taking place. The coming of a day of the outpouring was prophesied by Joel and by Isaiah. The foretelling that the Spirit would come, that God would give the Spirit. The end of the Old Testament ends with Malachi, and for 400 years no one receives any word from God. But then all of a sudden, a man named John the Baptizer, he wasn't Baptist. He was a baptizer. John the baptizer. He shows up on the scene. Masses of people go out to see him in the wilderness. Not an impressive looking guy. As a matter of fact, his clothing was unimpressive. His hair was not really well kept. But he had a message. He wasn't a teacher. He was a preacher. He preached repentance. He said, God is calling you to a closer relationship. My friends, you're far away. You need to repent and return to God. As he begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, I baptize with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As soon as John started preaching, his message turned toward the experience of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. He declares that he's just an opening act, that he's just the, he's just the first of what is about to come. The one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He goes on in John chapter 1, verse 19. Now this is John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet or Moses, in other words? He answered, no. 
Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one that you do not know. In other words, Jesus is there, but he has not been recognized yet. One who stands among you that you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He hasn't been revealed yet, but he's coming. This is all happening at Bethany and on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. My, I myself do not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Jesus has come upon the scene. And John begins to point to him. And he says, this is the one who is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is going to give you that close relationship. Not just someone that you can walk with on the streets of Jerusalem, but someone who will be with you and live in you. The Holy Spirit. Moses wished for it. Joel and Isaiah prophesied and foretold it. John testified about it. But then as Jesus begins his ministry, notice what he does in John chapter 7. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The Spirit has not been given yet. But Jesus says when he does come, it will be like a river flowing out of that person, filled to overflowing when it cannot be contained. Streams of living water shall overflow from that person. Because the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Jesus is not talking about a trickle. He's talk, not talking about a drip here and there. In so many Christians' lives, that's what we get. We get a drip here and a drip there, and we have a good day and a bad day. But Jesus says, look, when the Spirit comes, it will be like a river flowing out of you, an ever-non-extinguished well, that water will, freshness of your spiritual life will continue to just overflow, and that will be a sign that the Spirit of God has been given to you. As I began to think about this Spirit, this river, this river of living water, I thought, you know, I've seen a lot of rivers in my life. I cross a lot of rivers going back and forth. I crossed the, the Red River and I thought, Lord, maybe this is what it's like. But if you've ever crossed the Red River and I say, Lord, 
I hope this is not the river of living water. That's the nastiest, dirtiest thing that you could ever... I mean, it's terrible. That's the reason why they call it the Red River, because it's just as red mud as you can get. It's red, nasty. And I said, God, that can't be the, like the river. Sometimes it flows, sometimes it's just a trickle. I thought, well, maybe it's like the Brazos River. If you've ever been to the Brazos, the parts that I've seen, the North Fork of the Brazos, where my folks are all from, out in West Texas, if there's a dry season, there is no Brazos River. It's not there. You walk right across the riverbed. That's the way way some Christians are. When things are going great, boy, the river's flowing, isn't it? Oh, man, praise God. But when things aren't going so good, it's a dried up nothing. That's not what, what Jesus is talking about when he says, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Clean, pure, ever-flowing rivers. That's not what Jesus is speaking of. Some of you have, have uh, gone to Old Faithful. How many of y'all have seen, have seen Old Faithful? The geyser. Every once in a while. If you've ever seen that, I, I've been told. I haven't seen it. But you walk up there and you get your camera ready. You don't know when it's going to happen. You just know that it's supposed to happen. And so you stand there with anticipation. And all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, boom, it's just exploding. And then after a few seconds, that's it. It's gone. You know, for some Christians, that's kind of the way their life is. You've got to catch them at the right moment. It depends on how well the worship was that day. Depends on how good the preaching was of how excited I might be that day about worshiping God or, or praising Him or lifting up Jesus. Depends on how hard my week's been. And you've got to catch that Christian at the right moment. That's not what Jesus is talking about when He says, Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Flowing and flowing and flowing. Constantly, constantly flowing. I started thinking, I'm like, what can be a good comparison? And I thought, I've been to some natural springs, Pagosa Springs. Been to Pagosa. If you've ever been to Pagosa Springs in Colorado, you go and you can sit in these different pools, and they've got different temperatures and, you know, things, and you can sit in those things. It doesn't matter if it's cold outside or if it's hot. It doesn't matter if they've had a drought or if they've had a ton of rain those springs are still going to be going. And if you go sit in those springs, you can just enjoy it. It makes your skin feel good. But there's something about those springs that when you get home, you know you've been to those springs. Eric knows what I'm talking about. It takes several washes to get the smell out of your bathing suit if you ever go dip into the Pagosa Springs. The sulfur that's in there, it smells like rotten. When you pull in the parking lot, you're like, my Lord in heaven. They must have had a bean dinner some here, somewhere before I showed up. It's terrible. 
When you go to the springs, they're always going to be there. They're always going to be warm. There's always going to be water. And when you leave those springs, you're going to walk away being a little bit different. There's going to be something that's smelly about you. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave a smell, but He does leave a mark on our life. Come on, somebody. I said, when the Holy Spirit, and you have that experience of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's that river that continues to flow, that it's not on again, off again, or dry when things are bad, and good when things are going good. It's the flowing out of the Holy Spirit that comes out from within you. It's the giving of the Spirit that makes such a difference in the Christian's life. Jesus promised it. John 